Alright, we're notching off another big one with this episode. The Godfather is routinely argued as the greatest film ever made. It's the jewel of the new Hollywood era, probably the most heavily praised era in the history of American film overall. It's the favorite movie of at least two presidents. Along with Goodfellas, it's one of the few prestige films that blue-collar white dudes have definitely seen and will almost always cite as a masterpiece. Or have at least one poster from it on their wall. Yeah, it's an icon of bro dude cinema, but like one that won Oscars. One that's actually good. Yeah, I'm, I'm not super big fan of a lot of them. <laughs> Train spotting's all right. I recently recorded an episode on The Wizard of Oz with Sylvan, so I have some reservations about doing yet another culturally omnipresent classic so soon afterwards. Like Oz, The Godfather is one of the most examined works in cinema uh, ever released. As such, instead of compiling every interesting tidbit I could scavenge, I had to pick and choose which parts of the massive discourse I wanted to present here. As such, you're probably going to learn things about me based on what I'm deciding to prioritize over the course of the next however long this runs. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. And I'm Rachel, and this is actually my pick, because I have never seen the godfather all the way through i've seen like two scenes the massacre at the end and look at how they've massacred my boy you know and i've seen a lot of like the memes the references like the whole time i was like hey yeah i know where that is yeah that thing that happened yeah if you were born like after the 1970s you probably first encountered the godfather through like the numerous parodies and references and outside media that, that have been done since i read the mad magazine parody of the godfather at least a decade before I actually got around to seeing the movie. Yeah, my mom could play the love theme on the piano. Yeah, it gets brought up a lot. It's in the freaking Rugrats movie. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, a- Angelica is Vito, in case you're wondering. She cuts the head off a hobby horse. <laughs> yeah, my first exposure to The Godfather was as a kid. I used to read through my dad's old Far Side cartoon collections, and there was one where a horse in a suit was leaving a movie theater with his human companion utterly shaken, and she was like, relax. It's just a movie. And the movie, of course, was The Godfather. And I was like, Mom, I don't get it. Why is he upset? And she's like, well, there's a horse head gets cut off and left in some guy's bed. And I'm like, why? It's a warning. All right, plot recap. In case you have never seen The Godfather before, like me. And you just want the whole thing ruined for you on some random dude's podcast. I mean, I kind of knew what to expect, just because this movie is, like, such a pop culture staple. Yeah, you even knew that Apollonia was going to get blown up, and that's not something that's referenced in pop culture all that often. So, yeah, no spoilers for you. All right, the film opens in New York City in 1945 at the wedding of Connie Corleone, who is marrying Carlo. She's the daughter of Vito Corleone, the dawn of the Corleone crime family. The very first scene we see is him listening to an assortment of requests from various gentlemen because he has a lot of power and influence, especially in the region, and at least according to the movie's own folklore, a Sicilian man cannot refuse an honest request that is given on the wedding of one of his children. Yeah, we'll just go with that. Yeah. Don Corleone's youngest son, Michael, who was a Marine during World War II, introduces his girlfriend, Kay Adams, to the family at the reception. 
Also present is Johnny Fontaine, a popular singer and Vito's godson. <laughs> Frank Sinatra. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> he is also there seeking Vito's help in securing a film role, which he thinks will help his career greatly. Vito dispatches his consigliere, um, Tom Hagen. The best character in the movie, in my opinion. Love Tom Hagen. <laughs> yeah, you just wanted to take a shot every time Tom Hagen is trying to be the sensible voice in the room, and it's just not working. I know. Like, you're not a you're not a wartime conciliar, and I'm like, but he's the only person who's reasonable here. <laughs> Hagen is sent to Los Angeles to persuade studio head Jack Waltz to give Johnny the part. Waltz refuses because he has personal issues with Fontaine. He changes his mind when he wakes up in bed with the severed head of his prized stallion. Cartoon, cartoon, poor horse. He's $600,000 in 1945 money on four legs. Shortly before Christmas, drug baron Salazzo, backed by the Tataliev crime family, asked Vito for an investment in his narcotics business and protection through his political connections. Wary of involvement in the dangerous new trade that risks alienating political insiders, Vito declines, albeit politely. Suspicious, however, Vito sends his enforcer, Luca Brasi, to spy on them. Brasi is promptly garroted to death during his meeting with Bruto Tataglia and Salazzo. Later, Salazzo kidnaps Hagen and then has Vito gunned down in the street. And Fredo, his useless middle son, is there. Yeah, he just drops the gun while he's trying to defend his dad. It just doesn't work out. Vito's eldest son, Sonny, takes command at this point, and he's a bit of a hothead. A bit? <laughs> Salazzo pressures Hagen to persuade Sonny to accept Salazzo's deal, then releases him. The family receives a fish wrapped in Brasi's bulletproof vest, indicating that Luca sleeps sleep with the fishes. With the fish. Is now. <laughs> Although I was like, he said the thing. He said the thing. <laughs> yeah, just like so many memes in the I wild, know, just in the right? wedding scene alone. I know, right? I was like, wow, like a lot is happening. Like I thought the scene where you know Brando walks around with the cat, parking like this. I thought that that was gonna happen like way later in the movie. Oh no! A whole lot of the iconic scenes just come at you in the first <laughs> half hour. Vito survives the assassination attempt, but at the hospital, Michael notices that nobody is guarding him. The police has sort of cleared them out. It's very quiet in the hospital. It's kind of creepy. So he thwarts an assassination attempt with the assistance of the just, baker. yeah, the local baker who just stumbled across to drop off some flowers. Yeah, he, like, buffed him. He's like, we're going to stand here, we're going to put up our collars, and we're going to stand where we have a gun in our hand. Poor baker guy is just crumbling afterwards trying to light a cig. Yeah, out of all the various little touches, and this movie has thousands of them oh, yes. that contribute to the narrative, just that poor baker trying to get that cigarette in his mouth, that is very well done. <laughs> During this standoff, New York Police Department Captain McCluskey, Salazzo's unofficial bodyguard, orders him removed and gives Michael a pop in his mouth for his trouble. Right after, you know, he asks them how much the Turk is paying him to uh, allow his father to be killed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Following this, the Corleones plot to murder Salazzo and McCluskey, feigning a desire to settle their dispute. Michael meets them in a Bronx restaurant, in which, after retrieving a handgun planted by Clemenza in the toilet, he kills both men. Yeah, it doesn't quite go off as well as he, you know, expected. And I've seen this scene parodied with the Muppets, where Fozzie Bear goes to the Frog Father to ask him to pie these two guys who keep laughing during his skit. 
So in a slow-mo hiding scene, you know, Stadler and Waldorf get it in a restaurant. I was like, ah, oh, it's just like that scene from the Muppets, but with guns. <laughs> yeah, Michael is sent to Cecily until the heat dies down, uh, which ends things very abruptly with Kay. But... Yeah, because <laughs> Kay. I, hopefully, she gets more attention like the next movie because I don't. I don't know. I feel like I, she could be just developed a tiny bit more. I mean, Al Pacino is very handsome at this point. Things I've really just seen him in movies where he's like an old guy and like he's he's old guy handsome, but now he's young guy handsome. But like Kay, you know what he's doing. You can't escape it. Ah. <laughs> Despite a clampdown by the authorities, war breaks out between the five families and Vito fears for the safety of his kids. In addition to Michael being staked out in Sicily, uh, elder brother Fredo is sheltered by Mo Green in Las Vegas. Fredo and his useless ass. Mm-hmm. Sonny, after seeing his sister Connie with a big old shiner, attacks Carlo on the street and threatens to kill him if it happens again after just beating the shit out of him in front of the entire neighborhood. He hits him with like a trash can. It's a very satisfying scene. <laughs> when there is another instance of domestic violence, Sonny speeds to their home to enact revenge again, but is ambushed at the highway toll booth and is gunned down by rival gangsters. While in Sicily, Michael meets and marries the young girl named Apollonia, but a car bomb intended for him by one of his bodyguards takes her life. Yeah, I I felt like at that point, Michael is already tainted because he's agreed to be part of the family business, to be a hitman for some very powerful people. And I think he tries to, like, regain a little bit of that innocence with Apollonia. Like, he tries so hard to, like, follow all the courtship rules. And she really doesn't, she really has any lines. And so I'm going to guess she really doesn't have any idea about the death mark on him. And after she gets exploded, there's nothing with Michael, like, trying to deal with her family, the backlash to this. I'm, I'm, I know that, like, it's technically not important, but... I'm curious about what the fallout in Sicily would have been, but I'm pretty sure that Michael just ducked out and left. Yeah, during that scene where Michael and his bodyguards are talking about that hot girl they just met at the village, and Mm -hmm. they inadvertently talk about it in front of her father. He really offended and just storms off, and then Michael has the bodyguard bring him out, and then... Apologize and ask to court her and everything, and, like, they're gonna have to sadly pick her, pick up the pieces of Apollonia to bury her. Like, I don't know. Maybe, I feel like that could have been developed a little bit more, the fact that Michael immediately goes back to Kay. I mean, I guess it kind of references the fact that he's been back a year. I guess he mourned his first marriage, but there's no scene of him telling Kay about it, or she even knew that he was married before, or any, I I don't know. I think it just could have been something we could have gotten five minutes of. Yeah, this is such a tight, fast-paced movie. They could have squeezed it in without affecting the running time. squeezed it in, yeah. (laughs) Devastated by Sonny's death and realizing that the Talias are now being controlled by the dominant Don Barzini, Vito attempts to end the feud. He assures the five families that he will withdraw his opposition to their heroin business and forego avenging Sonny's murder. His safety guaranteed, Michael returns home to enter the family business and marry Kay, promising her that the business will be legitimate within five years. (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, I know he's trying, he wants to, but mm, I mean... 
it's not explicit as like how much time has occurred. I'm going to guess like, I don't know, five to seven years in between the first scene. But yeah, it's definitely not going legit. Abe gives birth to two children by the early 1950s. With his father nearing the end of his life and Fredo too weak, Michael takes the family reins, starting to move the business to Las Vegas. Expecting trouble due to the move, he insists that Hagen also relocate to Las Vegas but relinquish his role to Vito because Hagen is not, as he puts it, a wartime consigliere. Mm, which I feel like is a little insulting, but it's like, isn't his job as the consigliere to be the voice of reason? and to talk back to the Don as, like, this is the one guy who who's allowed to do that. I don't think he had any bad ideas. He yep. just wasn't bloodthirsty enough. Vito agrees that Hagen should have no part in what will happen in the coming battles with the rival families. When Michael travels to Las Vegas to buy out Mo Green's stake in the casino, he is dismayed to see that Fredo is more loyal to Green than to his own family, even though Green is just, like, Green nakedly abusive like, to him. I know. I, I, mean, I know that, you know, Fredo gets more time, on-screen time in the Godfather part, too. The other scene from this that I've seen is just like, I know what was you, Fredo. You yep. broke my fucking heart. Yeah. So. Yeah, the whole time in Godfather 2, you're just going, oh, Fredo. Oh, Fredo. Oh, I know. It's just sort of like, I mean, it, there's kind of like some references to like the fact that he's banging cocktail weights two at a time, apparently. It's fairly obvious that he has definitely has got some inferiority complex because he's been kind of skipped over on the, the succession stuff. Like Tom Hagen. He's his own thing because he's an adopted son. Sonny's dead, and then Michael skips over him. In 1950. He's Boo Boo the Fool. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, more on that if we do the second movie. I think we should. I, I volunteered to do Godfather Part 2 episode. <laughs> In 1955, after warning Michael that whoever approaches him to arrange a meeting between him and Barzini is definitely going to be a traitor, Vito suffers a fatal heart attack. At the funeral, Tessio, another Corleone capo, asks Michael to meet with Barzini, signifying the betrayal that Vito foretold. And also, the meeting is set for the same day as the baptism of Connie's baby. This sets up a hell of a montage. <laughs> yeah, I know. That has also been parodied to death. <laughs> While Michael stands at the altar as the child's godfather, Corleone hitmen murder the other New York City dons as well as Green. Tessio's treachery leads to his execution, and I think is a really underrated scene in the film, if there is an underrated scene yeah, in the film. Where he's just like, it wasn't business. Can you get me off the hook for old time's sake? Yeah, and he's like, Tom Hagen's like, uh, no. Yeah, no, or you just look Abe Bagoda right in his puppy dog eyes and said, mm -hmm. no, you cold-blooded motherfucker. I know. <laughs> Clemenza then garrets Carlo to death after Michael just sits him down and gets him to admit that he was involved and that he lured Sonny out and mm -hmm. even promises that, hey, I'm not going to kill you. You're the father of my sister's baby. I'm not going to make her a widow. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> and Michael, of course he did not. Michael lied. You're, you're a dead motherfucker, Carlo. Yeah. <laughs> Later, an enraged Connie accuses Michael of murdering her husband and tells Kay that Michael ordered all of the killings. Kay is at first relieved when Michael assents to discuss his business dealings with her this one time and denies the accusation, but is dismayed, visibly, when the Capos arrive to pay reverence to her husband and Don Corleone closes the office door on her in a very symbolic gesture. Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like Kay was, like, in denial because even when he said it, it's like, yeah, I could tell he was lying. Maybe not that I knew, but just 
he's lying. If we hadn't watched it happen, I would have been like, he's lying to you, bitch. Ah, <laughs> take your kids and leave. And that's the movie. All right, let's talk a little bit about the source novel. The Godfather is adapted sort of faithfully uh, from Mario Puzo's 1969 novel of the same name. What else? Do you know what else Puzo has written besides the Godfather books? The uh, uh, screenplay for Superman. Really? That's weird. Yeah, it is. Did he write anything else, or is he like one of those one book writers or one series writers? I think he has a long career, but I, sh I should have looked that up. If we do Godfather 2, I'll go All right, yeah, we got to have material for more. the next one. This is already going to be a long episode. <laughs> now, Godfather routinely shows up on lists of movies that are way better than the books that they're based on. Which I certainly believe can happen. And, yeah, this is definitely an example of that. While... The Godfather is technically a faithful recreation of the source novel's plot. The priorities of the film and the tone it takes and the thematic subtext are very different. To use a trashier example, Zack Snyder's version of Watchmen, while often a shot-by-shot -shot recreation of the graphic novel, by its very nature, just sort of contradicts a lot of the postmodern and anti-fascist elements of the graphic novel. So The Godfather is kind of the opposite of that. It made it a lot deeper. The Godfather novel is a fun read in certain spots, but it's a trashy airport book. Yeah, we're going to talk about how... It's, it's bro dude Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, because they're like, Sony has a giant dong. He ruins women's vaginas. He has a big vagina mistress. And it's just like, Mario, did you ever please a woman? Okay, uh, <laughs> if you haven't seen The Godfather in a while, you might have forgotten the scene because it's a total throwaway. Yeah, I know. There's, there's a bit where, where Sonny's girlfriend just, like, very clearly lays his out. Wife. Uh, yeah, his wife just lays out that he has this big old dong, and then Sonny runs off with the bridesmaids and, like, bangs her in a, in a room elsewhere. And Tom Hagen's like, hey, Sonny, we got business to do. Your father wants to see you. <laughs> and then he hears her sex moans, and he's like, uh, again. I know, yeah. But in the novel, <laughs> they explore this. It's so much more detail. Yeah, it's... <laughs> because Sonny has this huge dong. He just ruins every woman he's with, as Rachel put it. But this woman is different because she has a really baggy pussy and she can handle that dick. Yeah, um, anyway... And this starts a love affair that the novel just keeps touching upon. I feel like that's one of those... Uh, and that's not how vaginas work. Yeah, uh, the anatomy of the sides. I'm like, mm, I think, Mario, this is definitely a barely conceived fetish of yours if you decided to put this book. So Coppola <laughs> drops that. I mean, I mean, a big dick joke, one of them, that's fine, but you make it, like, an inherent part of his nature, then it becomes kind of ridiculous. Some literary critics consider The Godfather a loose retelling of Dostoevsky's The Brothers uh, Karamazov. I've not read that one. I have, my uh, knowledge of Russian literature is very small. Well, you have to squint, but mm -hmm. the Dostoevsky novel is about a powerful father, an impulsive son, a philosophical son, a good-natured son, an adopted son who is maintained in the family as an employee. Well, that sounds familiar. People also cite Balzac's Le Père Gorio as a source for several of the passages that became iconic catchphrases in the movie. Particularly, I'm going to make him an offer you can't refuse. Okay. Also, right. <laughs> and Puzo uses a Balzac excerpt from a different source at the beginning of the Godfather novel, so that kind of tips you off. <laughs> The Godfather was a New York Times bestseller for 67 consecutive weeks. That's pretty good. It sold 9 million copies in two years. That's a lot. 
It is very long, and while a lot of the fat is trimmed off, once again, Coppola puts more focus on other things. For example, if you thought Kay was uh, underserved in the movie, uh, that is nothing compared to how Kay was underserved in the novel. She's barely mentioned. Um, does the book cover the events that are going to happen in Godfather Part 2, or is it just an adaption of the first? It's just the first book. Okay. The second and third Godfather movies have no source material. While Puzo was involved in writing both of okay. them, they go off in completely uncharted territory. All right. The whole bit where Kay is, has mounting disappointment as to Michael um, getting subsumed by the family business and then mm -hmm. icing her out emotionally, that is entirely the movie's creation. That's not in the book. Yeah, that's much better. Uh, while Puzo was, as I already said, involved in the movie sequels, he didn't write an official literary sequel until 1984's The Sicilian, which is really more of a spin-off. It focuses on an Italian bandit who interacts with the Corleone family during Michael's exile in Sicily. After Puzo's death, there was a contest for putting out a Godfather sequel by Puzo's estate. Mark Weingardner was the winner, and The Godfather Returns was issued in 2004. A sequel to that, called The Godfather Father's Revenge came out in 2006. What do those even follow? Are they like an alternate continuity? They're kind of between the raindrops of the movies. The Godfather Returns takes place at the same time, but, like, fills in gaps and goes into other tangents, whereas The Godfather's Revenge takes place after three. Okay. Yeah, uh, Ed Falco wrote a prequel novel called The Family Corleone in 2012. For the development of this film, Paramount optioned the film rights to The Godfather while it was still a 60-page rough draft with the working title of Mafia. Puzo's agent begged him to hold out for more money, but Puzo was broke and desperate and accepted, like, a six-figure low bid up front. After the failure of 1968's The Brotherhood, Paramount... another, like, mob movie? Yes, that was okay. another mob movie. Paramount decided that the main reason why The Brotherhood failed was because they didn't get any Italian-Americans involved in the production of the film in any way. Yeah, that would work. And so they decided that this project should have an Italian-American director in order to make it more authentic, which I wrote in scare quotes. The first person they asked was Sergio Leone, who turned it down in order to direct his own passion project, Once Upon a Time in America. Peter Bogdanovich, Richard Brooks, Arthur Penn, Costa Gavras, and Otto Preminger were also approached, but all declined, until Francis Ford Coppola was suggested. Coppola's last film, The Rain People, was a box office dud, and it was assumed that he'd be cheap to hire. Coppola, finding Puzo's novel to be sleazy, trashy, and sensationalistic, <laughs> turned down the offer. However, after Coppola's studio ran up $400,000 in debt while producing George Lucas's THX 1138, Coppola listened to his family, who were imploring him to take the gig, and accepted the director's chair in exchange for $125,000 and 6% of the box office gross. That was a good deal for him. Yeah, I'm like, 6% of what The Godfather made? Ooh. Paramount, because they went through a succession of box office failures in addition to the Brotherhood, wanted a slim budget of $2.5 and they wanted to move the film's setting to contemporary Kansas City to keep costs down. Yeah, and that have sounds it, dumb. Yeah, have it shot on their back lot so they, you know, wouldn't have to, like, rent a lot of outside facilities. 
However, after the Source novel was just selling and selling and not stopping and just rising in stature, Coppola pressured them for a higher budget of about $7 million and to maintain the film's period setting. He also got Paramount to agree to shoot in New York City and Sicily on location instead of on the studio backlots. Although the film ran out of money, so they couldn't actually shoot in Vegas. Yeah, well, it's not like they're really going anywhere. You know, just to have a couple of establishing shots of, uh, hey, Dean Martin and uh, Jerry Lewis are doing a set here. And then, mm-hmm. hey, you're inside a hotel, so it's fine. Paramount soon became frustrated with Coppola as he insisted on many costly screen tests while auditioning actors. Coppola's indecisiveness caused production to lag, and Paramount considered replacing him with Elia Kazan. Ooh. Yeah, he named names in the 50s. Ooh, yeah, that rat bastard. At this point, Marlon Brando was secured, but he threatened to walk if Coppola was fired. Yeah, yeah, Marlon. Sometimes Marlon Brando does the right thing. Wanting the film to appeal to a wider audience, Paramount pushed for more on-screen violence, which Coppola reluctantly agreed to. I mean, I was always told that it was a really violent movie, and, like, the violent scenes are pretty violent, but compared to, like, some other mob movies I've seen, it's really not bad. Yeah, The Wild Bunch and Bonnie and Clyde, both of which came out a couple years before The Godfather, both a lot more violent than this. Oh yeah, I agree. Puzo was hired to write the screenplay for $100,000 and another slice of the gross. There was There was tension between Coppola and Puzo because Puzo wished to maintain the flavor of the novel, while Coppola wanted to (laughs) downplay the lowbrow elements in favor of themes surrounding power, culture, and family obligation. Yeah, we should have, you definitely should have listened to Coppola, he's right. Coppola and Puzo wrote competing screenplays and then later combined them. Coppola's version had pages torn out of the novel and pasted to his notebook (laughs) with extensive notes on theme and character motivation. Robert Town also did uncredited work on the script, mostly on the Vito-Michael Garden scene, which I also think is a very underrated scene. I agree. there are underrated scenes in The Godfather. Yeah, it, it, like Every scene in the movie is a signature scene. It has some sort of importance. When I read the Mad Magazine parody, I was under the impression that the rest of the family was disappointed that Michael was this college-educated kid who was going places and that he didn't want any part of the family business. So I was a bit surprised when I watched the movie. And they're just like, no, we don't want Michael anywhere near the family business. He's the good son. He's going to go off and do great things. We're doing doing these ugly, necessary things in the background so that Michael can do good in our name. And as Vito puts it, I didn't want this for you. I wanted you to be Senator Corleone or Governor Corleone. It was supposed to be Sonny, but then Sonny dies, and then the family dynamic shifts a great deal. Yeah, the screenplay was unfinished when filming began. Certain scenes were composed on set. I do not know which ones. During the production, The Godfather got complaints from the Italian-American Civil Rights League. They complained about the use of the words mafia and Casa Nostra in the screenplay. Not, not all the racial slurs? I'm sure they weren't thrilled about those either, but that was their main complaint because they're all over the source novel. Coppola went through a screenplay and only found two uses of the word mafia and none of the other term and not thinking that it really changed the story one way or the other, replaced them without a fight, and the Italian-American Civil Rights League reluctantly agreed to stop complaining publicly about the film's existence. Yeah, honestly, you don't even notice it, that it's not there. I didn't notice it until you pointed it out. 
Ultimately, Coppola pushed to have the film be called Mario Puzo's The Godfather because he felt that the final version was essentially the book, which I think is true in terms of plot points, if not in perspective. Mm -hmm. All right, casting. Puzo pushed for Marlon Brando early on. He wrote a letter to Brando saying, you are the only one who can play Vito. So that helped. I can't imagine some of the other actors that you have listed as Vito without it being laughable. Yeah, Paramount was reluctant, and among others, Lawrence Olivier, Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> George C. Scott, and Orson Welles. Okay, I could, all right, Orson Welles is the only one I could see doing it. Orson Welles pushed for it. He wanted the part bad, but oh. Coppola thought that he was wrong for it. He's not Italian, is he? No, he's not. Okay. It was down to Brando and Borgnine. Brando sent in an audition tape where he had stuffed his cheeks with cotton in order to closer resemble a bulldog. And apparently that won Paramount over. I've seen that fact parodied in, like, freaking Mel Brooks's Men in Tights, where you can tell that he's got a stuffed mouth. Like, some of the scenes where he's eating, I'm like, how are you eating with the freaking cotton balls in your mouth? Coppola wanted Robert Duvall for Tom Hagen from The Jump. Al Martino campaigned for the Johnny Fontaine part after a friend read the novel and compared him to the character. John Cazale got uh, cast as Fredo after Coppola saw him in an off-Broadway play and was impressed. Diane Keaton was cast as Kay because Coppola liked her eccentricities in rom-coms, particularly her Woody Allen work. Robert De Niro was cast as Polygato, but left to star in the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Johnny Martino replaced him. De Niro would be back. Probably for a better, and for a better part, too. Yes, yes, he did. He was. Warren Beatty, Robert Redford, and Ryan O'Neill were considered for Michael, but Coppola wanted an unknown Italian-American actor. He really liked Al Pacino, but Paramount felt that he was too short. I mean, he is pretty short. Like, James Tan is way taller than he is. Oh, yeah, he just towers over him. But I guess some of, they kind of make up for in some of the scenes. Like, I don't know if he and John Cazale were, like, close in height or not, but there's a lot of scenes where... He's sitting and he has people brought down to him as like a sign of his superiority. I do think it kind of helps that, you know, Michael is a bit different from the rest of the family. You notice when he first shows up and in his military uniform and him just being physically shorter than everyone, especially Sonny, contributes mm -hmm. to that. Dustin Hoffman, Martin Sheen, James Caan, and Burt Reynolds then auditioned. Paramount really liked Reynolds, who was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time, but Brando threatened to walk if Reynolds was cast. Caan ultimately won out, but Coppola kept pushing for Pacino instead. Paramount relented under the condition that Caan plays Sonny instead. He's better fitted for Sonny. Uh, I, I think so as well, especially since Michael is supposed to be very, very Italian and Caan is very, very not. Yeah. <laughs> Gianni Russo used his actual mob ties to secure a part. <laughs> Brando was reluctant because he had no acting experience, but eventually agreed to him. Uh, no, he wasn't Brazzy. He was Carlo. I forgot to write his name down. Yeah, honestly, that's not fitting, though, for using his actual mob connections to play a stoolie. <laughs> <laughs> Minor parts, including Luca Brazzi, were cast after filming began. Luca Brazzi's great, though. I felt bad that he died so early. <laughs> Yeah, the shoot lasted for 75 days, and while Paramount felt that Coppola was kind of a loose cannon that couldn't handle such a large production, and yes, that would become a Coppola issue on his later projects very famously, Godfather ultimately was delivered on time and under budget. 
before filming began, the cast was rehearsed for two weeks. They all lived in a, a big building together and were required to main character at all times, especially during meals. Coppola wanted them to eat dinner together as their characters, and he felt that that would build this sense of camaraderie that would come through in, a, in the incidental scenes. Uh, which I think is pretty much what you can see on the screen, particularly in the wedding scene where we've scenes where everyone is dancing mm -hmm. together. I also think it, you can really see it in the scene where Vito comes downstairs because he knows something's wrong and he sees Tom Hagen having a drink and they talk and sort of like how he didn't... It, it's like he's talking to him as his boss and he's also talking to him as his father at the same time. And like, I think even Vito recognizes that because he takes a moment to comfort Tom before he goes off. Yeah, one of the moments where Tom breaks his facade and mm -hmm. lets his emotions come out is when he breaks a little bit after he tells Vito that Sonny's died and Vito just sort of mm -hmm. pauses before walking away and, and cradles Tom as he's, yeah. as he's sobbing on his on his leg. Well, because, like, I mean, it, I believe that probably out of all the siblings, Sonny was probably closest to Tom because that was the kid he brought home. The wedding scene itself, they didn't have time to, like, storyboard it or mm -hmm. rehearse that spe uh, specifically. So almost everything in that is improvised. I mean, I was about to ask. I mean, it, it looks like a real party, though, that everyone's having a good time. Yeah, it basically was a real party. <laughs> Coppola and cinematographer Gordon Willis didn't use any then-modern film techniques such as helicopters or really all that many zoom lenses. You do get a couple of uh, zoom shots in the early scenes, but not so much. They really wanted it to have sort of like this tableau aesthetic to it, and to a point where if you pause at any random moment, it might resemble a Renaissance painting. Yeah, definitely some of the uh, chiaroscuro effects, especially when... Michael is in, and he's really becoming Don Corleone, especially at the scene at the end where he's interrogating Carlo, and you just see like half of his face in shadow, and it makes him even more intimidating. I gotta find Chiaroscuro more of a Baroque thing, but that's my art snob talking. Okay, yeah, I'm, not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a well art. actually guy. <laughs> I'm not, hey, I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> well, I mean, it's mannerism, which is kind of between both. Okay. <laughs> On that note, Paramount felt that the scenes were underlit. I think it adds to, like, it, it does get darker. Like, I think we talked about when we were watching it that, like, the only scenes where it was really bright is when Michael's in Sicily, because I think that that represents a time of hope. I don't think, and if Apollonia had died, hadn't died, I don't think he would have ever have gone back. Even with Sonny's death, I don't think he would have gone back. I think he might have. Everyone kept saying, hey, she's going to be a great American wife. But maybe, he wouldn't have, maybe he wouldn't have engaged with it as much as he would have. But it also comes down to the family would have collapsed without a strong figure to guide it. Because you can't imagine Don Fredo. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fredo. <laughs> Uh, yes, the darkness was a conscious decision. Coppola stated that it was supposed to represent the psychological underpinnings at the heart of the family. And yes, he wanted a very strong contrast between the New York scenes and the more sunny pastoral scenes in Sicily. There was a lot of great attention to detail in this film. I could go on for hours over the various bits and pieces, but the example I wanted to use is that when the film opens in 1945, you see a lot of vehicles and background shots with wooden bumpers because 
during World War II, Americans would often remove the metal bumpers from their cars for scrap drives, which were, you know, not actually going to tanks. They just threw all that stuff out. It was to build morale. But still, they had good intentions. Yeah, you know what? It's a good attention to detail, for sure. Speaking of attention to detail, that severed horse head was a genuine dead horse head. <laughs> This got some complaints. This uh-huh. is a couple of years before the uh, legal disclaimer of no animals were harmed in the production of this I film. I going to say about the killing the turtle and cannibal holocaust. Yeah, that one's not American and therefore didn't have that warning label. Uh, I think Heaven's Gate is the reason that happened. At anyways, Coppola acquired it from a dog food company. Can I ask why Heaven's Gate? We don't need to go on the whole Heaven's Gate thing because I did take a film history class in college, but like, did they hurt animals on the set? They exploded a horse. Oh, shit. Okay. Not on purpose. (laughs) All right. Well, because in the movie Four Lions, the terrorists blow up a sheep and they did kill a real sheep, but this movie was made in England, so I think their rules are a little bit different than ours. And that movie was made like 10 years ago. Because this was made during the new Hollywood era and in the wake of method acting being at the height of its power, many scenes in The Godfather were improvised. Vito slapping Johnny Fontaine and telling him to be a man, for instance. (laughs) That look of surprise was genuine. Yeah, the opening when the FBI are taking photographs of the license plates and uh, Sonny grabs the camera and smashes it in the ground and tosses okay, money at the guy. Okay, that that he improvised tossing money at the guy, that was so funny. That's so funny to me. He had, like, real or fake money and just throws it on the ground. <laughs> Yeah, he drew that from his personal life because, you know, if you if you end up breaking something accidentally or on purpose, you're supposed to make restitution for it. Yeah. It's an honor thing. Also, during that beatdown sequence where uh, Sonny grabs the, the garbage can and then just bashes him with the lid, that wasn't planned. Oh my God, the only time where I had, I, I did that, where I auditioned, I think we both got the part, I auditioned for a radio play in college, and this guy who I was acquaintances with, he read the male lead which was the ex-boyfriend of my character and like we weren't supposed you know we were supposed to stand still right but we decided to get into it so we like moved around the stage like you know he kind of approached on me I like would turn away from him and at one point he was like fine he was gentle right and he like grabbed me and spun me around and we were like really into it and it was and we got the part you know though when we were performing it we were standing still in front of a microphone instead of like actually like getting physical but I guess the director thought we were good for it so Sonny going, bada bing, that was ad-libbed by Khan. He apparently had an uncle who said that all the time. So <laughs> that's why that's a mob movie lingo. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of derivative works that owe a great deal to me. Lenny Montana, who plays Luca Brasi, was genuinely nervous about acting opposite Marlon Brando, and he flubbed his lines. Coppola decided to keep this in the film, and then added a scene where Luca is sitting outside in front and practicing his little speech before he comes I've in. I've seen that scene parodied. I love Luca Brasi. He's just so funny. Like, the part, he even flubs it when he's seeing it. He's just sort of like, his, like, his, not his never-ending, his ever-ending <laughs> loyalty. And, like, you can tell, you know, it's like, is it alright? Fine. Just just let him do his thing and then let him leave. And he's like, you for you, what for your daughter's basket of money? And Tom Hagen's like, alright, time to go. Let's go. <laughs> when Vito Corleone is listening to people asking favors of him, he is famously holding a cat. Didn't Brando just 
find that cat and was like, I'm going to play with this cat right now. Yes, he found a stray on the lot and brought it in for the scene. The cat interfered with the sound and Brando's lines needed to be looped over. Yeah, wasn't he purring? I mean, sometimes you can hear my cat sneezing in the background <laughs> George Lucas directed the mattress sequence, as it's called. Uh, that would be the bit where one of the enforcers is just lying down in between a montage of like newspaper clippings of mob action happening. This was done to give Coppola a break during the exhaustive shoot. The crime scene photos in which the montage are set are genuine. Lucas asked not to be credited for this scene. He considered it to be a thank you for Coppola for securing funding for American Graffiti. To ease onset tensions, Khan and Duval began a mooning competition, <laughs> which began where they unexpectedly flashed Brando when they were in an adjoining car. Brando found this hilarious and eagerly joined in. Pacino got into this too, but Brando won out by mooning 400 extras during the wedding scene. At the end of the shoot, the crew presented him with a heavyweight championship belt embroidered with moon champion. Okay, that's pretty funny. I mean, I've heard similar stories. Apparently, um, Kate Winslet flashed Leonardo DiCaprio when they first started working together on Titanic to, like, make him feel more comfortable. (laughs) Yeah, that would make me more comfortable. Gordon Willis was combative on set, often punishing actors by filming them in complete darkness if they missed cues. He's the cinematographer. Brando did not get along with Willis, which resulted in many screaming matches culminating in broken furniture that some mistook for a gunshot. Conversely, Coppola felt that he'd get a better performance out of his actors by being nurturing and supportive of them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we should take a moment to talk about how this is literally made in the height of the auteur where there's a lot of stories, you don't have to go looking very hard for stories of auteur directors abusing the shit out of their actors, let's just say Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Like, um, if you go on Shutter and watch, I forgot what it's called, but it's like a series that just covers cursed films, right? And most of the movies, they're not a curse. There's no supernatural stuff. Most of the incidents from movies during this time period, you know, early 70s into the early 80s, it's all because the director was an asshole. Like, John Landis's fault that people died on the set of The Twilight Zone. William uh, Fredkin hurt both Linda Blair and uh, the actor plays the mom. Uh, what's her name? Ellen Bernstein. It's interesting to note that. Uh, yeah, Coppola is usually argued as the greatest director of the new Hollywood era, which is where most of the most acclaimed directors of all time made their most acclaimed films. Mm-hmm. And he did not abuse his actors, aside from conflicting accounts of Apocalypse Now. But Apocalypse Now is a fucking nightmare. Yeah, Apocalypse Now is its own category. <laughs> Anyways, cast. Marlon Brando is Vito Corleone. He's great in it. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. We're going we're gonna to make this hot take that Marlon Brando was really good in The Godfather. Okay, I would love to say, though, that um, it was recently Robert Duvall's 91st birthday, and James Cann on Twitter was celebrating his birthday. He's just like, you know, happy birthday to my friend, my good brother, and Marlo's easel. And, like, the picture, he, like, tags him, and it's just all of his lines taped to Duvall's stomach off camera. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine not knowing my lines and then being expected to perform. Like, it's embarrassing. More on that if we get to a pop now. <laughs> 
There's, there isn't much that can be said about Brando's Godfather performance that hasn't already been repeated a million times, but even though this character in particular, if not the movie entirely, has been just lampooned into the ground, certain bits... Like, look at how they massacred my boy. Even if you saw a million Simpsons parodies beforehand. Yeah. When you see that in its context, it still works. Yeah. Largely because of Brando's eyebrows. I think so, too. And I think that he manages to do what I feel is often very hard. His character is both intimidating because he's the Don, but he's also very nurturing. Like he, I think that, you know, out of all like the darker figures, he actually does love his family. Even though he's, you know, totally prepared to, you know, write people off for death without even really thinking about it. And like, I would be afraid of, you know, the Don. But then, you know, like we talked about earlier, he does have his moments of gentleness and of, of real grief. Yeah, he, he died playing with his grandson with an orange in his mouth. I know. He was, he was yeah. orange Dracula. That was his last moment. Mm-hmm. All right, and then we have Al Pacino as Michael Corleone. Now, you said that the most jarring thing about him in this is how young and handsome he was. Yeah. Mine is that every single line delivery is sort of underserved. He's a subtle, nuanced actor in this. And if you're more familiar with your post-Hua Al Pacino, it can be surprising to revisit him in this mode. Well, that's Son of a Woman, right? Yes. Okay, I've only ever seen Son of a Woman in that Elaine parodies it in the Super Nazi episode of Seinfeld. He's really over the top in it, and he won an Oscar for it, and he just decided to play that character and everything else he appeared in afterwards, regardless of whether that made sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of good, and you can kind of see, like, I mean, this is probably, like, one of those details, is that the darker Michael gets, the more slicked back his hair is. I know he kept commenting on the Sicily scenes, like, why does he still have that bruise? And I was like, I think the bruise is there to give the impression that this all happened real fast. Yeah, he still I, had that bruise when the car bomb went off. Yeah, like, damn. All right, then we have James Caan as Sonny. He gets to have so much fun in yeah, this. Yeah, honestly, he does. I mean, just the scene where he beats the shit out of Carlo is pretty great. He gets a dramatic death scene. He gets to fight with Tom Hagen and his dad. It's a little bit too particular people again. It's for my son. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's another one of those good bits where he just gives him a look at it. He's like, grown-ups are talking. Yeah, he's like, shut up. <laughs> No, yeah, he's good in it. Um, I mean, everyone's good in it, but... Yeah, everyone's good in it. Like, this movie doesn't have, like, a weak casting choice, but (laughs) Godfather Part 3. Anyway, I I think that, you know, he's definitely a hot head, but you still have to feel sorry when he dies. Like, his death is still tragic. He gets caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's sold out by a weak man. He he really should have just put Carlo down when he had the chance. Oh, people routinely say that Sonny is the most sympathetic character in the film, and I can see where they're coming from. Um, I feel sorry for Kay, but I think, to me, I have a soft spot for Fredo, because he's just a weak little warm man. <laughs> Alright, we'll, we'll table that until until we get through the second movie. <laughs> fucking yeah. Fredo. Yeah, fucking Fredo. But, yeah, I do agree. Tony is definitely sympathetic. 
And then we have Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen. Tom Hagen's my favorite. <laughs> he isn't the most explosive presence in the film. He sort of has this quiet fire to him. He's supposed to be the guy who always has his head on straight. But the scenes where he raises his voice, Tom's scary. Yeah, he has more screen time than Michael does, for sure. Like, at least in the beginning part of the movie, it's really just Tom. And he does have an interesting place in the family, because he's both an employee and a family member, although he's not officially by blood. And he's not even Italian. Like, he's explicitly stated to be German-Irish, or something calls him a kraut in the derogatory term for an Irish person, which I was just like, oh my god. Unlike the incredibly Italian James Caan. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, he's got, you know, he's blonde, blue-eyed, you know, he's the outsider who is in. Yeah, the only major comment that Duvall made about his performance over the years, at least that I could dig up, is that every time he revisits the film, <laughs> he says that he should have gotten a better hairpiece. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, the first one's kind of bad, but the, the more hair he loses, the better he looks. All right, then we have Diane Keaton as Kay Adams, who is very good at acting like a woman who is completely out of her depth in this. Yeah, especially by the end, for sure. Kay gets a lot more meat in the second film. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, yeah, it was a one-dimensional character in the novel that gets at least two dimensions in the movie. Mm-hmm. This is very different from most of Keaton's other work. I kind do of forget th- that she's in this movie. Yeah, I do, because, you know, usually when you bring up Keaton, I think of, you know, all the rom-coms and stuff like that, and they're like, oh, right, she was also Kay in The Godfather. I keep forgetting she's Kay. She's good as Kay. I'm kind of surprised that there wasn't as, like, big of a deal, or maybe it's also because I did watch Goodfellas the first time last year, and these kind of get lumped together in the quintessential mob movies, right? I was really surprised that there wasn't a big deal of the fact that Kay is, I'm going to say, probably not Italian. And we kept, you kept joking that she was Protestant white bread. Oh, yeah. In, in the Mad Magazine parody, all of the other members of the Minestrone family <laughs> are just dunking on Kay for being a goddamn Protestant. That surprises me because isn't, like, bloodline important? Because in, in a Goodfellas, like, Harry Hill can't ever be a made man because father is Irish, even though his mother is Sicilian. Like, you have to be, like, full blood. Like, I'm surprised that that doesn't have an impact on how she's treated by the family. I mean, Tom's not even legally adopted, and he's also, as consular Ray or whatever probably the hell you say, he's on the outside anyway. The mob movies pick and choose what parts they're going to use and, you know, which parts of American mob stories that they're going to treat like folklore, mythology, and so on and so forth, because this is an element of American history that has been romanticized quite a bit, put a pin in that. <laughs> and then we have Abe Bogota as Tessio. Minor bit part here, but, I mean, it's just Bogota. He's he's a fabulous character actor. He's usually remembered pretty heavily for this because it's the goddamn Godfather. Yeah, I but... swear I've seen him in other things, and I was like, where the where else have I seen this guy? He looks so familiar. Yeah, he's in a bunch of things, often playing similar parts. He also played a TV detective named Fish, who is just always complaining about his hernia. Yeah, he, I'm not familiar with that one. He also plays a grumpy old man who whines endlessly about his chronic health conditions. He's convincing as that. This is the second Vagoda feature that uh, I've talked about on the show, the other being Mask of the Phantasm, where he's playing the gangster in that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Yeah, getting back once again that 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 scene where you know he asked if he could let him off the hook for all time's sake. A lot of them are your brother, Tom. But hey, how about it? <laughs> then we have Tolly Shire as Connie. Yeah, she only gets a handful of scenes, but yeah, the part where she confronts Michael uh, in the final moment—that one's rough to get through. Isn't she Coppola's sister? Yep, Coppola uses a lot of family members in his movies. That's where Nicolas Cage got his start. Yeah, at least Nicolas Cage was like, I'm gonna try to make it not glaringly obvious that I'm, you know, a Coppola. <laughs> I think does I know that she probably has she has bigger parts than other ones, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, doesn't she kind of fully go into the dark side too? Yeah, a little bit. We'll get back to that. Uh, and we have John Cazal as Fredo. Oh, Fredo. Oh, Fredo. Yeah. Fredo doesn't get all that much to do in the first Godfather, which is probably why they picked an off-Broadway unknown, and Paramount was just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, Cazal has one of the best resumes in Hollywood history because he was in three Stone classics, and then he died. Yeah, very sadly. I mean, um, one story about the making of Kramer versus Kramer is that um, his longtime girlfriend took care of him until he died is Meryl Streep, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to get a reaction out of her, Dustin Hoffman started taunting her about his death, and I think she slapped him across the face. Because Dustin Hoffman's a fucking dick. Yeah, he is. And I was like, that's mean. I would have probably used my fist and not my hand. Yeah, using yeah. method acting as an excuse to be a dick. Yeah, especially like someone dying of bone cancer in his 40s. Like, yeah. <sighs> But uh, yeah, this, he's good. We're, yeah, we're gonna have more to say about Kazali in the in, in the Godfather Two episode. But you know, just being a little weak kneed weasel in this. Yeah, but I I kind of like that. It's always kind of interesting to see, like you know, the sibling dynamics, especially as they you know they change because of like I don't know birth order versus skill. He's, he's got so much sweaty energy. He I wants know. to impress his little brother so badly. He's so he's. So so cringy at the part where they get to Vegas. I was like, Fredo, no. Also, until I watched this, I kept thinking his name was Fredo, not Fredo. <laughs> Oh, I'm probably mispronouncing every third name that yeah, comes I don't up, even, but I don't, no, I he's he's good. He's got that little worminess to him, like the part where his father gets shot. He fumbles the fucking gun and then cries, and I'm like, check him for a pulse. He doesn't even do anything. He's just like, <laughs> come on, Fredo. <laughs> they like, we're, they basically just push him upstairs. They don't even give him a real job. He's like, I'm gonna learn the casino business. Yeah, yeah, good he, job. Yeah, Good job! You write us a report about that, we'll put it right on the fridge. <laughs> and we have Al Martino as Johnny Fontaine. Eric Sinatra. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's time to talk about how most people assume that Johnny Fontaine is a thinly veiled answer to Frank Sinatra. It was mentioned in the film that Fontaine was working for this big band leader and he wanted to be released from his contract in order to pursue things as a leader, but the contract was iron tight because he got into it when he was a struggling kid and didn't know any better. And Vito Corleone paid him a visit and held a gun to his head and got him released. And he's been in his debt ever since. Most people assume that Frank Sinatra got out of his contract with Tommy Dorsey in a similar fashion. Yeah, and we both and we both know what a calm and easygoing and you know not very angsty person Frank Sinatra was. Sinatra was furious <laughs> with this character. <laughs> He felt the movie was demeaning to Italian-Americans in general and condemned it upon its release. In order to try to placate Sinatra, the Fontaine part was downplayed in the final edit of the movie. 
right. And then we have the music. Uh, Nino Rota, who was best known for composing for a, a number of Fellini's finest films, was brought in to bring a sort of Italian flavor to The Godfather. He composed his own score while working in bits and pieces of period pop hits and classical music. And he also used something that sounded very familiar to those who had seen a film called Fortunella, which ended up being the famous love scene from The Godfather, which Rachel has serenaded me with a few times. Yeah, I'll think about that. Your scuttle version of The Godfather love theme. Paramount felt that Rhoda's score was too highbrow. They they wanted a more crowd-pleasing gangster-type movie. But Coppola put his foot down. He felt that that made the movie feel far more Italian. That would have been a stereotype in yeah. Frank Sinatra. Coppola initially turned in a cut that was slightly over two hours in length. Paramount insisted that 50 minutes be added to the film in order to make it feel more epic. I'm surprised because more often than not, we're hearing stuff where you got to cut 30 minutes from this movie. Yeah, that's the opposite of most people's problems. Coppola was happy to comply adding additional footage that fleshed out the family dynamic, more instances of the brothers talking to each other and to the father and so on and so forth. The Godfather was one of the first Hollywood movies to be released throughout America all at once. Uh, Beforehand, the traditional approach was to release the film in a few major cities and then gradually expand if word of mouth was good. The Godfather almost instantly killed this approach because it was the biggest hit of 1972 and remains one of the highest grossing films ever released if you adjust for inflation. It broke Gone with the Wind's record on ticket sales, but would only hold that distinction until Jaws came out. The Godfather was greeted with near-universal acclaim, and its reputation has only grown since then. It was nominated for a slew of Oscars and won for Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor for Brando. Nino Rota got a nod for music, but this was revoked since he used the love theme, which was very similar to a piece of music he wrote for a different movie, and that violated Academy rules. Brando boycotted the Oscars, sending Sasheen Littlefeather to decline the award and give a speech about Hollywood's mistreatment about Native American actors. This was greeted with some derision from, you know, the shut up and sing crowd, I don't want politics in my entertainment type of thing is one of the earliest examples of that, at least in the modern era. I don't think it's a big deal. I think Brando's pretty much right in his complaint, and it really only disrupted the prestige of the Academy Awards. If you consider the Academy Awards to be prestigious rather than an anti-union activity where Hollywood jerks itself off, which is what it is. Prestige has only been going further down every year. Pacino was nominated for Best Supporting Actor and was angry that he was nominated for that and not for the acting category. He thought that he should have gotten a Best Actor nod since he got as much screen time as he did. Yeah, but as we know, Michael's the important character, but he really doesn't have as much screen time in this one as I was expecting him to. When they did the very episodic first hour of the film or so, you're like, wow, this is breezing right by. And where's Michael? Yeah, I was like, I was like, 
Alright, you may not know this, but they made a couple other Godfather movies. You don't say! The sequel was greenlit before they were finished shooting the first one. That, uh, that I'm surprised by. Yeah, The Godfather Part 2 came out in 1974. Uh, it got mixed reviews, but has since been frequently argued as one of the best sequels ever made. A lot of people argue that it is better than the first one. You asked me if I thought that Godfather 2 was better than the first one. Yeah, I was curious. I think in terms of structure, you could definitely make a case for it. The only real thing that the first Godfather has over the second one is all those iconic lines. Sleeps with the fishes, make him an offer he can't refuse, leave the gun, take the cannoli, which is also ad-libbed. You only get really one of those major moments in Godfather 2, I think. You also get a really iconic line in Part 3, so, you know, that shows you what iconic lines are for. Yes, I'll watch Part 3, even though it does not have Mebby and Tom Taken in it. <laughs> Personally, I think it's stupid that they didn't put him in there. Wasn't it like, didn't it come down to like money issues? Uh, like, like, oh yeah, he had a heart attack, he's, he's dead now. Godfather 3 only really happened because of money issues. Mm -hmm. uh, after Apocalypse Now defied all the odds and was a big hit despite being a disastrous shoot, Coppola thought he was fucking bulletproof and spent even more money on a Tom Waits musical that cratered hard. What movie is that? One from the Heart. Never even heard of that. It destroyed Coppola's stature in Hollywood and plunged him into debt for the rest of his Hollywood career. He made movies because he desperately needed the money, and that is the only reason he made Godfather Part Three. Oh boy. So yeah, we'll get to those down the road. I'm not really super inclined to do an episode on Godfather Three. We'll we we'll see where he goes. I mean, we could at least do one on Part Two. There was, however, a video game. I ha I was aware of that. In 2006, right as the Grand Theft Auto franchise is grabbing headlines and breaking sales records, a Godfather video game came out. Pacino refused to allow his likeness in the game because he was already involved in the Scarface video game, and I guess he had to pick one or the other. Marlon Brando was on board and uh, recorded a few lines before he died, although they apparently were not good enough to be used, so a Brando impersonator was brought in. Coppola was not approached at all, at least according to Coppola, and he thought that turning The Godfather into a video game was dumb. The premise of the game is that you're playing as, like, this no-name soldier in the Corleone family, and that you run Grand Theft Auto-style missions and gradually rise through the ranks. I've heard people say that the game is actually pretty fun, but that's not what you want from a Godfather game. Yeah, I think you would really want a story-rich, play-throughable world with a plot, and maybe some rootin'-tootin'-point-and-shootin' parts. I want to play as Sonny and give him a chance at the toll booth. <laughs> that would be fun. I want to be afraid I wouldn't want. <laughs> okay, the game did well enough for a 2009 Godfather 2 sequel, which was not particularly well received. Alright, and uh, I suppose I could talk about the legacy, but like in the Wizard of Oz episode, why fucking bother? Uh, Everyone knows, like, the Godfather legacy stuff already, and lots of other prime movies. Yeah, it is color just about everything that's come after it. Um, before the new Hollywood era, gangster movies were considered low-rent trash. And a big element of the new Hollywood era that I bring up every time that we do an episode set during this period and with these types of personnel is that guys like Coppola and Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas wanted to take the low-rent trash of their childhood and use these French New Wave cinematic 
cinematic techniques and the, the Orson Welles approach to auteur filmmaking and turn this garbage into a masterwork that has a foot in both worlds. And The Godfather kind of epitomizes that approach. I mean, you could also make the case that Star Wars ep- epitomizes that approach, but... I also feel like Indiana Jones might be a bit of a better comparison. Also, Jaws or various other science fiction films that came out during this period. A lot of new Hollywood people tried to do a, a fresh approach to the Hollywood musical, which is essentially what killed, killed the Hollywood musical. Yeah, what killed the golden age of Hollywood and allowed the new Hollywood era to begin. It is interesting seeing them try to mix and match that sort of thing. The first thing I wrote down when we got to themes was tail wagging the dog, which <laughs> happened a lot because of Godfather. Well. I think that it's crazy whenever some evangelical group or politician tries to blame video games for a school shooting rather than, you know, ingrained systems of toxic masculinity and the ready availability of firearms and the utter lack of proper access to psychiatric health care in this country, amongst many other things, you know, using mass media as a scapegoat. There are definitely instances where we look into the abyss that is our pop culture and the abyss looks right back at us. I don't think it'll turn you into a killer, but you ha- if you have those inclinations, it can definitely put ideas into your head, and in certain ways, it influences our behaviors in ways that can be surprising when you look back on it. Like, for example, the reason that leather jackets are associated with biker gangs is because Marlon Brando wore one in the wild one, and it just sort of caught on in real life. Like, there's a lot of examples of things that happened to Godfather that real monsters mimic took on yes the movie popularized terms like consigliere cosa nostra omerta and capo regime in american english vernacular yeah you know coupled with the novel's popularity using the word godfather in a mob context was completely made up by puzo <laughs> and as rachel put out uh, said real life gangsters love the godfather Sammy the Bull raved about how the film accurately portrayed mob life from an insider's perspective. Notions of family, honor, and duty are not exactly innate to organized crime, but posturing in such a way became much more common after 1972. Most infamously, and often cited when people make this argument, crime boss Pauly Intizzo altered his speech patterns to imitate Vito Corleone. (laughs) And before The Godfather came out, he engaged in a lot of casual swearing, and he had very poor grammar, but after that, he tried to clean up his act and philosophize more and come off like he's an an intellectual man. Yeah, I think that this one does sort of mythologize it quite a bit into all the codes of honor, like they're going to do fucked up stuff to each other, but they're going to be gentlemen about it. Uh, Like, I think it's a little bit more like fantastic than Goodfellas, which just kind of sets it sets it all up and then deconstructs it. The second half of the film versus The Godfather, and we haven't really quite gotten to like you know Michael's downfall yet. Yeah, it has influenced behavior because it is such a big moment in bro dude cinema. Like this is the big weepy, grandiose, Oscar-winning movie that it's okay for tough guys to like. Mm -hmm. And you, you can see that left, right, and center. 
I think infamously Donald Trump, who just talks publicly like a cartoon gangster because he thinks it makes him look like a big, tough man. Instead of a pathetic little man baby. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of good fellows in that, too. And as I mentioned in my intro, two presidents have cited The Godfather as the greatest movie ever made. Oh, which one? One of them's Trump. Okay, well, who's the other one? Obama. Yeah, the other thing that I uh, wrote down was the American perception of immigrants, which played into this movie both on screen and behind it. We already talked about how the Italian Anti-Defamation League had serious issues with this movie because Italian immigrants were marginalized in the United States for the first century or so that they were coming through Ellis Island and other ports. If you look at mob history, it grew out of immigrant street gangs, but they didn't just like run the numbers or gambling or bootleg racks. They were also the unofficial fire department, since the official one ignored immigrant communities, and there was nobody else to put out the blaze if it happened. There are lots of examples of stuff like that. Yeah, and I think that's commented in the film when Vito was like, I did all of these dirty, horrible, awful things because of my family. I wanted to build a better life for them. And that's something that just about every first-generation immigrant community does. Although most of them don't engage in violent street crime in order to accomplish that. Yeah, I mean, there's a scene when he's talking with Michael. He did all these things to give, you know, him an opportunity to not have to make those decisions. And it's tragic to him that, you know, Sonny was always going to be in it because he's the firstborn. Fredo has an act in... Jesus Christ, what's the word I'm looking for? Inadequacies! Fredo has his inadequacies, and then, you know, Connie doesn't count because she's a woman, and you've got Michael. He can, he can kind of do something different, so... This pops yeah. up again in The Godfather Part 2 because it sort of takes place during the Kefauver hearings, and just, it's a little less obvious now in our Year of the Lord 2022, but in 1972, Italian-Americans being considered a valued part of the American landscape and a group of people who helped build the country into what it is was a very recently mainstreamed phenomenon. Like, Italian-Americans were not considered white until the mid-20th century when the civil rights movement got started and, you know, the white citizens counselor and the KKK and the John Birch Society made outreach to Italian-Americans Americans and Irish Americans because they wanted solidarity against this other group that they considered worse that were being uppity and asking for more, which is an ugly reality that is, that is usually ignored in something like, say, Fievel. But uh, still, it was a hard one thing, and it should have happened one way or the other. This reminds me of how Columbus Day got federally recognized for the first time in 1942 by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in a very cynical attempt to placate and win support from the Knights of Columbus because he needed as many votes as he could get because he was expanding the powers of the presidency in ways that made people compare him to a dictator. Yeah, that kept going. <laughs> you see, up until 1942, the American American government designated Italian Americans as enemy aliens, and they might have joined Japanese Americans in concentration camps. That was very much on the table until these sorts of things happened. And once you know the historic context behind that, you definitely see it in the way The Godfather is constructed, because it's a very insular community that is inside of America, but is also separate from it. Like, whenever an outside group comes in, it is almost always hostile. I mean, what, your great-grandparents came from Ireland, 
Right. Yeah, and I mean, I'm hoping I'm not veering too far out of my lane here because there is very little Italian blood in me. My father was adopted by an Italian man, so I guess I'm a Tom Hagen. That's why I have an Italian last name, but not a drop in me. And while Irish immigrants also have their history... It's derived from the Latin Valentinus. It means courage. The word valiant is also derived oh, from okay. it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, most Romance languages have a variation yeah. of it in there. I don't have any recent immigrants in my, you know, it's not really part of the living memory here, although Thomas Bolden came over with his sister who was going to be a nun because she didn't want to be a coal miner in England. So that's, what, that's where the Bolton came from. <laughs> Irish Americans do also have their history with American organized crime, you know, with the Westies and whatnot, but it's not the same level of stigma that Italian Americans got. And you can definitely see where the Italian American Anti-Defamation League was coming from, because after spending all of the 20s and 30s with all these fucking gangster movies, making everyone assume that Italian Americans act like that, you know, they thought they're out of the woods. And then the fucking Godfather comes along and I'm like, oh, no, not this again. Are criminals. The Godfather does give its characters all dignity, except for Fredo. Yeah, Coppola definitely wants to depict them as human. Uh, Getting back to the fact that he first turned down the movie because he thought the novel was sensationalist trash, but since he was on there in the director's chair and he had to make something, and yeah, there were actual Italian American gangsters, so maybe try to make a film that was emotionally honest, take the uh, gangster trash and throw some French New Wave paint on it and present it like it's a prestige movie. Mm -hmm. All right, and... Well, we could just keep going on and on with themes. Uh, that's everything I've written down. Is there uh, anything you'd like to talk about, The Godfather, before um, we put this one to bed? I think that maybe we can expand more on this once we do an episode on The Godfather Part 2. Just the, the depiction of masculinity in this. Like, I will say that, like, the guys, they're very, you know, they're touchy-feely, you know, even if Vio does tell Johnny not to act like a, I'm gonna guess some sort of derogatory slang for a gay man or something. I'm gonna guess that's what that word meant. Um, you know, it clearly, you know, they're all very affectionate with each other, and I think that it really, compared to like other crime movies where fitting into the masculine ideal quote-unquote, is a much bigger part of the characters, like Colin Sullivan from The Departed for example, or you know, all of the misters in Reservoir Dogs. I do think that it's very interesting, because it's, this is an insular, masculine organization. There's no godmother. You know, women are either like, they're either the mistresses, the mothers, or the wives. They're not the soldiers or the. Yeah, mama the, gets one line. Yeah, mama gets one line, you know. Kay is, I think, willingly ignorant to this. I mean, Connie knows what's going on, but that's because she was born into this. Yeah, I, I keep getting back to the, the Godfather just being this rite of passage for Brodude cinema, and the only, like, big prestige, grandiose, uh, emotionally resonant film that it is okay for posturing tough guys to love and cry at. I mean, you get to a, like, get to a certain point, you gotta pick your stats. Are you gonna be, you gonna have a Godfather? poster you're gonna have reservoir dogs pulp fiction or fight club poster on your house 
Gotta go thick. <laughs> and yeah, the film does really cater to the masculine ego because there's this big resonant of I'm not a violent man, but I can do what needs to be done when yeah, push comes to um, shove. Mm -hmm. Yes, and like, and I think that it's interesting that when Sonny, Sonny gets upset when Carlo is beating Connie and is a lousy husband, but he is also a lousy husband. He's off banging chicks at his sister's wedding. And another thing, like barely a character. Yeah, another thing about The Godfather that appeals to the male ego is that, like, I'm this big tough guy and men fear me, but I am also cultured and philosophical and engaged with the, the spirit of the community. I can occupy both territories at once. Mm -hmm. Any guy who, like, is currently watching a YouTube video about how to become an alpha or a sigma male is probably really into The Godfather. <laughs> sigma male. I've heard of, like, the, the beta omega. Boy, boy, all those things. Sigma guy. A sigma male is somebody who is powerful enough to be an alpha, but chooses not to. They're <laughs> solitary. <laughs> it, as your derisive laughter indicates, you have already figured out that this is incels rationalizing <laughs> oh. what they already act like. I mean, I'm interested in it in the same way that, like, I'm interested in true crime, the sheer horror and fascination of this, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that we'll talk more about it when it gets down to, like, you know, Fredo's inadequacies. Hey, like, I said it right this time, inadequacies versus, like, um, if we, I would love to do an episode on The Departed, gotta say it correctly, like, Colin's very, like, posturing masculinity, like, his awkward moments of, like, saying that, like, the firemen are all F slurs and that his dick works real good, working overtime. Like, all of, like, these catch-ups. Like, the fact that, you know, he's poor, comes from nothing, and Frank Costello was probably molesting him or a priest was molesting him. That kind of masculine, like, I gotta play catch-up here that you see with a lot of characters. And it's always interesting to me when watching a movie that is very hyper-masculine to see where that little, like, weak bot, I guess you could say, what leaks out of that. Alright, well, that's all that I got, and, uh, yeah, this was a long one, but it's the fucking Godfather, Yeah, I so. know, right? I figured we were gonna... We took a whole day for this. Like, what if we started... We sat down to start doing this at 2 o'clock, and it is 7.30 now. Oh, uh, yeah, when you first suggested the Godfather, it was like, alright, we gotta... We did a day. We, yeah, because we're gonna have to plan our whole afternoon after yeah, around we, this. Yeah, we took several bathroom and snack breaks. We even ordered a pizza, so... <laughs> <laughs> and all the food. Yeah, the food. We had the food for a second. I was very hungry watching this. I'm like... Mm, spaghetti, red wine. <laughs> of course, if we tried to order the type of pizza that we got in Italy, they would have laughed at us. They would have asked us to leave the restaurant and then their country. Oh, yeah, I ate pizza in Italy with a fork and knife because everyone else was doing it. I didn't want to be that tourist. <laughs> like, all right, she's already ordering in English. See how well she can do. All right, well, thanks for getting to the end of this, everybody. We will see you next time.